Are either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Yeah, well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry? You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Kind of a quiet week, but still a pretty big week at the movies. Welcome. This is the Screening Room Podcast, and she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And we are from MadWolf.com. The Screening Room Podcast is sponsored by Marcus Crosswoods Theater. With a 70-foot-wide ultra screen featuring Dolby Atmos surround sound and Dream Lounger recliners. First up is one we've been, well, at least I have been looking to. Sure. Looking forward to very, very much for quite a while, and I'm not the only one. Security guard David Dunn uses his supernatural abilities to track Kevin Wendell Crumb, a disturbed man who has 24 personalities. It's glass. The three of you think you have extraordinary gifts, like something out of a comic book. I've developed an effective treatment for this disorder. I need your abilities to get us all out of here and show the world we exist. That sounds like the bad guys teaming up. Well, I don't think it's a spoiler to say now that this is the (laughs) capper of a trilogy that started with Unbreakable. Right. Which was back in, was that 2000? Yeah. I think it was. It was a while ago. It was a while ago. And it's funny, so it's writer-director M. Night Shyamalan, and... If you remember, after he broke out with The Sixth Sense and blew everybody's mind, his next movie after that was Unbreakable. And I think because the twist at the end of Unbreakable was... A little more subtle. A little more subtle than The Sixth Sense. At the time, people looked on it as, I think, a letdown, which was totally wrong. Oh, yeah. No. Uh, and it I, was genius. It and was... I, yeah, I loved Unbreakable so much from the from the very beginning. And I think then in the intervening years when M. Night's work started to get, you know, really... Crappy. Okay, crappy. And then Unbreakable started to get looked upon in retrospect and get a lot more respect. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a lot of people then later said, well, this, you know what? That's his best film. Yeah. You know? Uh, And then he came back a little bit uh, a few years ago, got back in the groove a little bit with a a movie called The Visit. It was nice, right? It was nice to see him do, it was small, right? Quiet. And and it definitely did have a twist ending. And it's still one of those where you're like, how did I not know. know that was coming? I mean, it was very fun. It was a good way to start getting him back in the good graces, yeah. I guess you would say, because people, if you have forgotten the years before that, we're talking about mm-hmm. movies like not only The Happening, right. but then we're talking After Earth, yeah. The Last Airbender. Yeah. I mean, he was a persona non grata, yeah. pretty much. He really was. And The Visit, you're right, a small, kind of unassuming movie, a little bit scary, mm-hmm. and it had that great, one of those hide-in-plain-sight endings. How did I not see this coming? And it was nice. It was effective. You leave there going, oh, man, that was a nice little kick of a movie. Mm-hmm. And then came Split. And I think we have both said on a few occasions, you know, Split, it became a, a huge success. It, it works on two levels. As just a straight-up split personality movie, and I was worried about that because usually they don't go so well. It does. It's, it delivers a solid, interesting, incredibly well-acted film. And then you get the kicker at the end, and that's right. the other. It's like, and then it's a whole other, oh my God, this is a sequel. Yeah, that was the brilliant thing about it. It, it worked on its own. It mm-hmm. stood on its own. Mm-hmm. If it would have stopped right there before yep. the diner yep. scene at yep. the end. 
And then when Bruce Willis shows up and you realize this is all in the unbreakable universe, it's just, I'll be honest, I wanted to stand up and cheer. I thought it I was you might brilliant, <laughs> just brilliant, because he almost worked his legend, I guess, he, he used it to his advantage because he, really he, he knew yep. <laughs> you were trying to outsmart him. And the whole time. And, and it's funny because using using a multiple person, a character with multiple personalities, you know, you just kept going, OK, well, this is what he's going to do because right. blah, you know. It, yeah, he, yeah. He, he, it really is a very satisfying film. But it was also a very clever sleight of hand for him because we were all looking for that sleight of hand. Yeah, and it benefited so much from that tremendous performance by James McAvoy. Oh, God, he's so good and in it. As I have said on a few occasions as well, before that movie, I, I really didn't think James McAvoy was such a much. I really didn't. And uh, that movie has showed me that I was so wrong. It's, I mean, it's it's astounding. Oh. You know, he has so many uh, completely formed, articulated characters physically, yeah. the way they talk, their verbal tics, their personalities, and then the way that he can just go from one to the other and back and forth. It's insane. Amazing. It's brilliant. Amazing. So that wet everybody's appetite immediately after seeing that final scene of Split. That wet everybody's appetite for the next round in this universe of comes the capper for the trilogy, which is Glass. And Glass, of course, refers to Mr. Glass, played yeah. by Samuel L. Jackson. Now, one of the th first things you, you probably wonder, and actually somebody at the screening we saw asked, do I need to see Unbreakable and Split before seeing this movie? And I would say, I think you do. I mean, it's not totally necessary. Will you be able to follow what's going on? Yes. It oh, just well, you, won't you, mean as much to you. You won't care you. as much. Right. You won't care as much. It, it, you won't care as much. It won't mean as much because David Dunn, played by Bruce Willis, if, if you remember from Unbreakable, he's the one who has come to believe that he has these supernatural powers. And in Unbreakable, he we came to see that his comic book-like arch enemy was Elijah Price, otherwise known as Mr. Glass, because his bones broke so easily. So they were the two adversaries set in Unbreakable, and now they're back in uh, Glass, because in the intervening years since Unbreakable, uh, Bruce Willis's character, David Dunn, has been running a security firm with his son. And by the way, the the same actor yeah, uh, plays is, back, his son, yeah. is back that played his son in the first movie, which was a nice, nice little treat. Spencer Treat Clark, I think is his name. Anyway, so he's been using these powers where he, if he touches somebody, he can see. Uh, he can kind of get their an in sins. intuition and see their sins, and he knows when to track down somebody uh, that has done something wrong. So that's how he's been spending the time. And so early on in the movie, he is tracking the Beast, which is, of course, the most dangerous of the personalities of Kevin Crumb, played by James McAvoy, because at the end of uh, Split, he was off on the loose in mm -hmm. Philadelphia, mm -hmm. and which is where this is set. So... And that, that sets up a really nice and very needed early bit of action in Glass. Because what happens after, you're, you're very confined in a mental institution. So, and also, it's, it's fun that it, the character that gives him away is Hedwig. And don't we all <laughs> love Hedwig? Yeah. I think we do. So it's fun because you get to see a couple of Kevin's personalities, and you get some creepiness, and you get some action, which is important because... Act two is pretty, pretty uh, slow moving. Yeah. So right away, there's a confrontation between uh, David Dunn's vigilante character who has been come to has has come to be known in social media in Philadelphia as the overseer, mm. uh, a name he's not really fond of. But that's what people have come to to dub him. So there's a confrontation with them. And then that confrontation 
lands them both in the psych ward. And wouldn't you know it, the very same psych ward where Mr. Glass has been serving his sentence. And then Sarah Paulson, who's always wonderful, she plays a, a therapist, a psychiatrist who's been brought in specifically because her area of expertise is Patients who are delusional and believe that they are comic book characters. Now, one of the things that I think the film does well, although I think that it gets buried a little bit, is this notion that everything can be explained away. So even if you think you're special, it can be explained away, mm -hmm. right? And that's, mm -hmm. that's a really big theme in the film. Yes. And the fact that the Beast, who his other personalities thought was invincible had such a difficult time with one man, and Sarah Paulson is trying to convince this one, everybody that this one man is just a man. Mm -hmm. There's nothing super about him. It does. It causes uh, shockwaves through the Beast's personalities, and they start to lose their belief in him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, of course, Mr. Glass's superpower is that he's an evil genius. That's he right. is the evil supervillain. And I, I think one thing that's very interesting to remember about... I guess this whole trilogy, if you go back to the very beginning of, of Unbreakable, the first movie, even though that was Shyamalan's follow-up to The Sixth Sense, and he was as hot as hot could be, mm -hmm. he still was very much dissuaded from, in fact, almost forbidden from marketing that movie as a superhero movie, because the studio at the time didn't think that was a selling point. Mm. Now think about that now. And what superhero movies have become since oh, yeah. then, you can almost, you could make a case that Unbreakable kind of set that tone for the way some superhero movies have taken that serious, you know, trying to put them in today's sort of world. You know, a movie that, remember how the, the, the Christopher Nolan deconstructed Batman and made it a very more realistic world. You're giving me that look, but yeah. it was ahead of its time. It was ahead of its time. I, I give I give the resurgence of the superhero as a genre to Christopher Nolan entirely, but you know well, no. maybe he pulled a little something from I, Shyamalan. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not. I guess I'm not, I'm not trying to say that it was all from that movie, but I think it's very ironic that at the time he was forbidden from yeah. marketing it as a superhero. But you movie. know what's and funny about, about it that now is that it worked in its benefit. That it wasn't, you know, that you didn't know you were watching a superhero movie. That was part of the charm of that movie. Yeah, that is true. And I think some people, that's, I think that's part of the reason why, for some people, that twist ending kind of fell a little bit wooden because they didn't quite get it, mm. I think, of what, what he was saying here. It was basically a, a, a Superman and there is arch villain yeah. uh, toward the end. But anyway, so now you're 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 right about the conflict that uh, Sarah Paulson's character sets up in this movie. Comic books as real life reflecting real themes, r human potential. That's that's what one of the conflicts that I that I got out mm -hmm. of this as the movie went along. The limits, the fragility sometimes of human potential and what can what can um, encourage it and what can beat it down early on, especially in childhood, mm -hmm. with childhood trauma, because all these characters uh, and their backstories kind of had some. So that is, is a theme in the movie. And I, I do say I really enjoyed watching it. Yeah. I think it unfolds very well. Um, I think it's shot well. It's acted well. Oh, sure. McAvoy, incredible. And, you know, Sam Jackson brings a great mix of condescension yeah. because he knows he's smarter than everybody else, which I love. Uh, that is perfect for the character. And this is a time where Bruce Willis, I know you get on me for liking Bruce Willis too much, but if his default setting of steely glares was ever put to the best use, it's right here. Mm -hmm. It fits the character so, so well. Um, yeah, Sarah Paulson is solid. The one curious 
misstep, I think, even though she's very talented, is with uh, Anya Taylor-Joy. She's very talented. I think that's why it's a misstep. She is terribly underused, I think. I mean, she is she's a phenomenal talent. And, yeah. you know, she doesn't get much opportunity here to do anything other than sort of she's got those giant eyes. She looks like a comic book character. Right. So they give her every opportunity in close-up to look like a comic book, comic book character, but she doesn't have much to do other than that. Yeah, she's brought back as Casey, of course, from Split, and they dub her as the girl the Beast let go. And I think her character is mainly there to to give the Beast, give Kevin some humanity. But mm-hmm. you're right, there are so many tight close-ups yeah. on her eyes, yeah. and there is at least one, at least one direct reference in the script to comic book eyes. Yeah. They're like, man, okay, we get it. Uh, <laughs> that she seems misused, because I agree with you, she's very talented. Mm-hmm. But the, that one uh, of the cast seemed a little, she seems very underused yes, as an actress so and, and, and as a character. I thought so too. Shyamalan does a lot with color. You'll notice that each he, he chooses a color scheme for each of the three main characters. Oh, sure. And sometimes those colors are very bright. And that usually corresponds with when that character is very full of the comic book theme. And when it starts to get maybe muted a little bit, the color gets muted a little bit. I really enjoyed that. So I think in many ways, it's a very well-directed movie. And for two-thirds of it, I, I was really, really engaged. The problem, and it's a, an unusual problem because it's almost set up by the skill with which he has done this in the past creates all these expectations for what he's going to throw at it, throw at us at the end. And that's why what he does come with feels a little safe. So I think part of, and, and actually I think you can, you can see this in his um, earlier career as well, is that he, he gets a little full of himself. Mm-hmm. He starts making movies about him. And that's what, where I think this one starts to fall flat is there is a, a certain point in the film where, I don't think I'm imagining it. One of the characters is basically speaking on behalf of Shyamalan. And then the other thing that I think is problematic to a degree is uh, the uh, in, in a very real way, the movie is about making movies. It's about how we can all make It's basically about how we can all be superheroes, but it's about how we can all find our special quality. But it's about how we can all make movies. And it's about M. Night Shyamalan. So to me, I think that the core story drowns a little bit while the film, I think, does more service to trying to point to its themes than service its narrative. Now, I I will say that I didn't get the idea that it was about making movies as strongly as you did. Uh I did certainly get a self-serving vibe from it because there are certain lines of dialogue, and I'm not going to say which ones, there are certain lines of dialogue where you can really say, oh, wow, <laughs> this could be coming straight from the writer-director here and yeah. not so much from this character. Yeah. Um, so I, I agree with you there. It got a little self-serving, but the main thing I, I was disappointed by is just the fact that it, you know, it laid up. The two movies that came before and two-thirds of this movie, you know, paints he paints himself into a corner that, let's be honest, is going to be hard to get out of. Sure. How do you get out of this? Superheroes in real life, comic books reflecting real life. And the way he does it to me felt pretty generic, pretty safe, and uh, certainly not any kind of an ending that uh, is going to rank with, with his best. But then, as soon as I say that and think that, I think, well, is that fair? But he kind of created that expectation for us. So it's kind of a, it's a weird kind of cycle to keep going back through that after the first two movies, especially, even if you don't count the sixth sense or anything else, you have come to expect 
he's going to really lay it on us here at the end. And but, he know, just kind of doesn't. Even if you don't, even if you haven't seen the others, even if you are one of the people who showed up at the screening and they've not seen the others, mm-hmm. does it stand alone strongly on its own? And I think even if you're not expecting a twist ending, um, it, the end of the film is not that satisfying. Right. There is a, a certain moment toward the end of the film that's kind of profound and will surprise people maybe. And I think that it required a stronger post, right? You needed a better reason for that to be why that ended that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think you get it. And also one thing I did notice to- toward the end, there's a couple, one in particular, but a couple little bits of a heavy use of foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, some of his best tricks, for lack of a better word, have usually been hide in plain sight sort yeah, of yeah. stuff. And then he starts, you know, holds on something a beat too long yeah. that really foreshadows and gives gives away his hand a couple of times. So, uh, again, I think it's there's there's a lot to like about the movie. I'm certainly not saying it's bad. I do think it's the weakest of the three. Uh, it's easily the weakest yeah, of the three. In, in this trilogy. And just for, for people like me that was really expecting the ga- moon. gangbusters. You were. And maybe that was our fault. I don't mm-hmm. know. But boy, you know, after after Split uh, resurrected that universe for after so many years, it just man got uh, so many people, including myself, so amped up for it. It just yeah, it just feels like a little wet blanket a little bit toward the end there. But it was an engaging experience for most of it. Yep. That just ended on a weak note. Yep. Uh, and that is Glass. Next up is a film still in limited release, but getting a little bigger rollout, I think, now. It's a movie that is sure to be Oscar-nominated for Best Foreign Film. It's a family of small-time crooks taking in a child they find outside in the cold. It's called Shoplifters. This is the latest from writer-director Hiropazo Kurita, mm-hmm. and I hope I pronounced that correctly. You did, and, and, and that's one of those filmmakers where no matter what the film, you're saying, yep, I'm going. Yeah, and this goes back to themes that he has done a few times throughout his career. Most recently, I think, in a movie called like Father Like Son, mm. there's been a couple others that come down to the theme of, of nature versus nurture. Mm-hmm. And especially in this, it's about... What really makes a family? Is just bloodlines make a family right, or, right. Or, or the love between people make a family? Because there is one line of dialogue in this movie where a character says, uh, sometimes it's better to choose your own family. Sure. And that's what's happening with this, this group of small-time crooks in, in Japan. They, they just get by by doing these little griffs, these little cons, and the father and son, after ripping some things off from a local grocery, are coming home one night, and they encounter this young girl named Yuri uh, shivering in the cold, and they take her home that night. And originally, the, the, the plan is to return her to her parents the next day. But after talking with everybody in the house and, and seeing some of her behavior, making them think that maybe she's got an abusive home life, they decide to keep her. Hmm. And that as the movie goes on, involves cutting her hair, hiding her from the authorities and things like that, you you start to see, you start to get little backstories on all the different members of the household and find out, you know what, maybe they're not all blood family. Maybe they came to this family in similar ways as a little girl or other ways that uh, brought them here. 
Uh, and now they add a part to the scheme and l- that lets everybody keep eating. But, you know, they, they care about each other very much. And it it works best when it works in these small moments. And, and when it does, it works wonderfully well. It really does. Centering on those themes of feeling a family and feeling real connection, whereas other people that have actual bloodlines, you know, maybe maybe don't. It's, it's definitely a, a movie that can create magical moments the more it's being small. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the more it's being a subtle and nuanced. The only times that it started to go off the rails a little bit for me is toward the end when it starts to lose that subtlety and, and suddenly I noticed there'd be pregnant pauses between lines of dialogue when you know what the next line is. You know what it's coming, and those pauses only set it up, the obviousness of mm-hmm. it. And it's funny, we were just talking about M. Night and how he kind of created the own pro- his own problem for himself. It's the kind of the same deal here, because two-thirds of this movie is done so, so deftly and in and, and so, such a, a nuanced way that when it isn't, it just draws more attention right, to that fact, right. you know. But uh, the performances are are just fantastic, and even though even those couple of missteps toward the end aren't enough to to derail this movie no. uh, from the overall effect that it has on you, it's just wonderful. It it, it really is, and uh, I fully I, I think it's almost a guarantee. Yeah, nominee. It's, it's yeah. going to get nominated for uh, best foreign film, which will pit it against Roma. Actually, right now I think it might be the strongest contender um, versus Roma. Oh, I, I think, think they're so. you know they're toe to toe right now. I think so. I certainly think Roma is. I, I really is, is a better I, movie, I but... hope that a movie that we'll talk about uh, in the next couple of weeks. Cold War. I hope that makes mm-hmm. it as well because I love yeah, that one. I would, but yeah, I there's a lot of really great foreign language films out there. There really are, and this is definitely one of them called Shoplifters. Catch it if it's in your area. One more opening in wide release, and ooh, look at this. It's a horror film. What? So we like that. A group of college freshmen pledge an exclusive fraternity, but soon realize there's more at stake than they could have ever imagined. It's called Pledge. Hi. Hey. Hi. What are you guys doing tonight? You guys should come by. What friend is this again? We like you guys. You might be club material. This club is exclusive. Each and every member dominates his field. You're at the doorway to the elite. So you ready to pledge? Yes, yes sir! Woo-hoo! Over the next 48 hours, you will be tested. Physically, mentally, emotionally. Privilege comes with hard work. Sacrifice. We can't keep doing this for 48 hours. It's just hazy. Yeah, that's what frats do. David, this is College guys, am I right? So for a minute, this reminds me of Rust Creek, which we talked about last week Mm -hmm. as a a very low-budget, well-made indie horror film, and you recognize it from the outset. Mm -hmm. But if you give it a minute, you'll realize that the filmmakers have something insightful and interesting to say. Now, I feel as though uh, this movie transcends the tropes of its genre a little better than Rust Rust Creek did. Three sort of outcast, nerdy college freshmen. Oh, yeah, they're they're flat-out nerds. They are. And they're very good (laughs) friends, and they're just trying to rush. So they're going from one party to the next, trying to rush a fraternity, embarrassing themselves, you know, showing... The one one guy is so outwardly awkward, trying to be cool. You know, like... High five! Yeah. And then nobody's high five anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and and you know where it's going. And eventually, a hot girl writes seductively a, a, a an address on one of their arms with a pen, and you know tries to convince them to go to a party. And and even if you weren't watching a horror film, 
It really doesn't matter what your genre is, right? If you're watching a sci-fi movie, you're saying they're being invited for the aliens to eat. You know, if you're watching a comedy, it doesn't matter. You know that this isn't going to go well for them. But one of the reasons the movie works is because the three leads are so believable. It's not your Revenge of the Nerds kind of, you know, broadly drawn nerds. These guys, you think, no, I knew that guy. I went to high school with that guy. You know, they're very believable. And one of the leads, in fact, the most nerdy, the high five guy is the writer, Wiener, writer yeah. of the movie, yeah. Zach Weiner. So he, he wrote himself some great uh, some great lines and, you know, and got himself a nice character as, as I think you're right. All of them are. Yeah. And once they get into the fraternity house and start pledging some of the members of the fraternity, the fraternity that they're pledging, they're good characters. They too. are good characters. They are not. Again, this isn't Revenge of the Nerds. You don't have these completely one dimensional sides. Sometimes the the you know, the the heroes, the nerds, are, they're not they're a little questionable, a little sketchy, you know, and then sometimes the bad guys who are definitely bad guys feel a little sympathetic for. Mm-hmm. And, and even if you don't. They all do a good job of breaking out of the archetype. They are full-fledged characters. Yeah. Well, it's it's a torture movie. Let's put it that way. There's some uncomfortable things are done to people. Oh yeah, uh, in this uh, movie, it's uh, mean and it's and it's tight. It's, it a, is tight. it's a brisk film. It doesn't waste any time, and it is it is pretty mean. Oh, it's runtime. It's only um, seventy seven yeah. minutes long. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, it's lean and mean, and it's a. You know, sometimes you throw around the term B movie. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, it felt like that as as we were watching. I thought this is a nice little B movie. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't think it's more than it is. It hits the ground yeah. running. If you like horror movies and likes, you know, some blood and some some thrills that way and some some maybe ooh turn away yeah. type moments, yeah. it gives them to but you. But you know what? I don't think that this is straight up horror porn. It is insightful. It's no, got something I don't think very it is interesting to say about the nature of success, oh, particularly yeah. in America. And I I thought it was very relevant right now. No, I, I don't. I don't want to give the impression I thought it was uh, torture porn at all because I don't. I have very little use for those right. types of movies. No, there are definitely those yes, some uncomfortable very, very. moments in the hazing, uh, but it takes some turns. It throws you some curveballs you may or may not see coming. And you're right. It has some nice little things to say about privilege and about uh, conforming. Yeah. Things like that. Mm-hmm. What will these? What are these guys willing to do? Compliance for to get in this fraternity. Yeah. And yeah. What, and really, and, what does the fraternity represent? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, I think we were both. Uh, it's, you know, it's not the greatest movie ever, but it was a nice little surprise. You and know, I, and it's 77 minutes. It's right. hardly a waste of your time. Check e- it out. Exactly. I would say it's 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 lean and mean and, and worth a look if you're into that. And that's pledge. And with that, let's go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Big week in the lobby of home entertainment this week. Halloween. The reboot comes out, and we both we both enjoyed it very much. That's a great word for it. It is incredibly enjoyable. It is. You know, it just it just serves up. No, but it it serves up what you want in an enjoyable fun, jumpy horror film, and it is in love with the original, and who isn't? Yeah, and it's a another indication that Jamie Lee Curtis is a badass. Totally. And she owns it, and I think it leads to a very, well, we, I think we, we mentioned before when we originally talked about this movie when it was new, it leads to one cheer-worthy moment, yeah, yeah. and a really nice, I think, just slam-bang satisfying finale. Yeah, I agree. You know, we were talking earlier about the unsatisfying finale of Glass. This is a very satisfying finale. In fact, it, to compare those two movies for a minute, I think it, this one is flipped. I think the finale of this can make up 
for the flaws in the first two acts yeah. of this movie and leave you, you might be right. and leave you walking out with a much more of a satisfied yep. feeling. I yep. thought I yep. thought so. Yeah, we really enjoyed the new Halloween. Also, a movie I enjoyed. Let's keep on the Halloween uh, theme. Goosebumps Two: Haunted Halloween. I thought this for the family, for the kids, for a nice Halloween movie, very enjoyable. In fact, both Goose, Goosebumps movies yeah, now, absolutely, you know, a lot of fun, a lot of fun. Jack Black and some some uh, a good cast of kids. I would recommend it very highly for the family for that type of Halloween boo yeah. type of movie. Yeah, uh, the Old Man and the Gun comes out this week. Robert Redford, maybe maybe it will turn out to be his last role as an actor. If it is, it's a perfect way to go out. It really is. It's a charming movie, and that's what it asks of him to be charming, and mm-hmm. he is. Uh, and he gets the greatest support from Sissy Spacek, who's just amazing. You know, I hope I hope she gets some consideration for Best Supporting Actress this year. I'm not sure she's going to, but she is. she's great she's in so this good. movie. She's so, so good. good. It's a true story about uh, an old man who just loved robbing banks. And he did it, but he did it in a polite way that even his victims are going, well, he was a nice man. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, you know, I'm sure they take liberties with the actual story, but it's based on a true story. And it is. It's just a charming And the movie. thing is, the film is in love with Robert Redford. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's really, in a, in a very real way, that's what the whole movie is. It is a tribute to the career of Robert Redford. It's a, it's a beautiful capper. I sort of hope it is his last movie. because I mean, right, right down to using some clips from exactly. a couple of his movies. Right, right, right. In a very organic yes. way. It works. Yeah. It worked. So, uh, yeah, so it's a nice, it's a nice charming time, The Old Man and the Gun. Not so much for The Bookshop, which is also out on video. Yeah, you know, a great cast, uh, a little bit of an obvious kind of a setup and just bland delivery. So it, it, it wastes a lot of potential. Yeah, it's got a couple of good leads, Emily Mortimer, Bill Nye, but doesn't doesn't go there. Patricia Clarkson. Doesn't, oh, Patricia Clarkson, yeah. But in the end, doesn't deliver. We were not big on the bookshop. Looking ahead next week, a movie we just saw last night. We did. Stan and Ollie about who else? Stan Laurel and Oliver Hardy. And it's um, Steve Coogan. Yep. Plays Laurel. And John, John C. C. Riley in a pretty effective fat suit. I would say a, pr- yeah. a, a really effective fat pretty suit. Pretty effective yeah. fat suit. So we'll talk about that. Also next week, um, Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway, Serenity. Mm-hmm. I know very little about this. I just know that it's Stephen Knight who wrote it and, and directed it, and I love him. Oh, that's right. Exactly. Okay. He wrote Eastern Promises, yes. and that's, that's, that's a very, very high standard. Also a movie uh, getting a lot of good buzz right now. Right. The Kid Who Would Be King. I'm surprised. The first time I saw that poster, you know, several, mm-hmm. many weeks ago, I thought, uh, but now I'm actually a little eager to see it. Yeah, and then one that we saw, boy, a long time ago. Yeah. Finally a chance to talk about Nicole Kidman in Destroyer, and that's out next week, and a movie I've never heard of called Genesis 2.0. It's a documentary. It should be good. Ooh, okay. So, stepping it up a little bit with more titles next week. Until then, let us know what you thought about this group, especially Glass, because there's a lot to talk about there. There If you're fans of the whole trilogy, let us know what you thought. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. Easiest way to get a hold of us is on Twitter. You can find us at MadWolf. M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. Also on Facebook and Instagram, we're Mad Wolf Columbus. And the main website, you can find all of our written reviews and our other horror movie-only uh, podcasts called Fright Club. You can find that at madwolf.com. The Screening Room Podcast is a presentation of the Columbus Radio Group and sponsored by Marcus Crosswoods Theater. Until next week, she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but... I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap. <laughs>